Today we're going to continue looking at 1 Thessalonians, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, and actually I should read the whole chapter, but I won't, whole first chapter. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, so the scriptures teach. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example of, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Let's pray. Father, again, we look to you to speak to us. This is your scripture, your word. You are its provider to us. By your Holy Spirit, teach us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin with verse 4 today, where Paul writes, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. This phrase, brethren, beloved by God, is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And the closest phrase to it is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul writes, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit, and through faith in the truth. So returning to the phrase, brethren, beloved by God, we see that Paul Paul follows that phrase with his or God's choice of you. And in doing this, Paul appears to be using the Old Testament language that describes God taking the initiative, taking the first steps, being the first to act, taking the initiative in loving and choosing Israel for himself. And so the inference that we draw from this is that God has taken the initiative in loving and choosing the church, the body of Christ, believers for himself, which in this case is made up of the believers in Thessalonica. We tend to think of Christianity as individuals, but we are a body. Israel was a nation. Yes, it was made up of individuals. The body of Christ is made up of individuals, but I urge you to see God as a God of community, Without a doubt, he interacts with us individually, just as I interact with my children 
Barb's and my children individually, but we are a family, and they're part of a family. They're not individuals out on their own. And so I would just urge you to keep that in mind as you read the scriptures and as we work our way through these letters to the church in Thessalonica. An example of this kind of Old Testament language, God taking the initiative in loving and choosing Israel, an example of this kind of Old Testament language, and very possibly, or probably, the language Paul is referencing, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12, where Moses refers to the tribe of Benjamin as beloved of the Lord, which, interestingly enough, is the tribe Paul was from. And we know that from Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. It says he is from the tribe of Benjamin. We get a fuller, more detailed picture of God taking the initiative in loving and choosing Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. And I want to read those verses to you where Moses is recounting this to the whole nation, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you. All right, so let me stop here a moment. Just notice who took the initiative in loving and choosing. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you. And again, notice the order because the order remains the same in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. It wasn't because you were some great nation. You were like Rome or Babylon or the uh, Medes and nation of the Medes and Persians or the U.S. No, it's not because you were some great nation. Or in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. Reality is, they hadn't done anything to deserve being loved and chosen. There was nothing special about them. God acted on his own. We get a less detailed version of God taking the initiative in loving and choosing a people for his own possession in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And I want to read that as well, just to kind of round this picture out for you. And so in Deuteronomy 10, 14, and 15, we read, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. So here's the God of creation. Here's the God who possesses everything. Yet, Moses says, yet, in spite of that, on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is to this day. So that was the Old Testament language that was used to describe God's loving and choosing Israel for himself. In John chapter 3, verse 16, which is one of the most well-known verses in Scripture, Uh, Jesus used what I would call New Testament terms when speaking of God taking the initiative in loving unbelievers. For God so loved the world, not that the world was deserving or had done anything in particular to 
call out this love for God toward them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We often focus on the emphasis of have eternal life. God's done all this so we can have eternal life. But I want you to notice that Jesus is also pointing out that God acted first. He took the initiative. And it was love that compelled him to take that initiative. Paul adds what I would call New Testament details to this truth in John 3.16. And he does this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. And I want to read that. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So Paul is beginning to paint this picture that we weren't such wonderful people. There was nothing special about us. In fact, we were pretty bad people. We were the ungodly. We were helpless. And helpless not because of circumstances that had overtaken us, but helpless by our own doing. And then Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. I mean, that could happen. But God, going far beyond what one might do for a righteous person or even a good person, God, going beyond that, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, God acted first and he acted out of love. So while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it didn't stop there. He didn't just die for us. Much more than having now been justified by Christ's blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, that's what we deserve, the wrath of God. You may not see yourself that way, but that's the reality of it. You may not be as bad as the worst sinner on earth, But any sin that harms another, and all sin does, is reprehensible to God. God is love, right? He is love. Love does no harm to its neighbor. So all that is sin is the opposite of love. It harms the people around us. And that is reprehensible to God. It ought to be reprehensible to us. By the way, it probably is reprehensible to you when somebody is harming you. You know what that feels like and you know your response. But here's what God has done through Christ, saved us from the wrath of God that is to come on all unrighteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, Paul uses a bit of different imagery to explain the same thing, that God took the initiative in loving and choosing unbelievers for himself. And I want to read that to you. Here's what Paul writes. Among them, that is among unbelievers, we too, all of us, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's what we deserved, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, notice again, because of his great love with which he loved us. He took the initiative out of love 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were living in sin and deserving God's wrath, he made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul just puts this little parentheses in there, for by grace you are saved. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, notice that, so that, notice it. It's an important part of this whole statement. So that, God has done all of this so that we could have eternal life, yes. So that we could live with him forever, yes. So that we could be free from the wrath of God against sin, yes. But notice this, so that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace. We become examples to all of living beings of God's grace and the surpassing riches of richness of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What this means for us today is that just as God took the initiative in loving and choosing Abraham and Abraham's descendants who became the nation of Israel, so God has taken the initiative in loving and choosing us and we become part of the body of Christ, a community of believers. Yes, this is just a piece of, a part of the whole body of Christ. But even though we are in this room, in this place, in this city, in this state, in this country, we are just as much a part of the universal body of Christ as anybody is. We are part of a community. And God has taken the initiative out of love to bring us into this community. I want to discourage pride. I want to discourage discourage an elevated sense of self-importance. And these are two things that easily set in. It is easy for us to look at ourselves or see this church or see the church as people who are special, people who are somehow more important. Uh, We've kind of risen above the rest of the masses and God has shown us favor. That's one way to look at it, but I want to recommend that you consider that's a prideful and self-important way of looking at it, which we ought not to look at it that way. And I want to remind you that according to Titus chapter 2, verse 14, God did not do this for our sake. Yes, we are blessed because of this. Yes, we have eternal life because of this. But God did not do this for our sake as if we are the important ones in the story. He did this for his own sake. And not because he's egotistical, but because he has the path of life. He has the way to the abundant life. He has the truth and the life. So he did this for his own sake. And here's what Titus 2.14 tells us. That God did this, this act, this taking the initiative in loving and choosing. He did this to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
zealous for good deeds. And so may we always be humbly grateful, not feeling superior, not feeling important, not feeling like we're special. Yeah, we are special in one sense. But the reality is we should always be humbly grateful, always feel undeserving. So let us always be humbly grateful that we have been included among those God is loving, choosing, redeeming, and purifying to be a people for his own possession. Moving on, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the word choice in verse 4, as it is used in this phrase, his or God's choice of you. I'm well aware that the words chosen and elected, and by the way, those two words come from the same Greek word, It is up to the translator to decide whether to translate that Greek word as chosen or as elected. Same Greek word. So I'm well aware that the words chosen and elected are commonly identified with Calvinism and Reformed theology. But I want to point out that neither Calvinism nor Reformed theology predate Paul. In fact, these teachings did not come into the church until the Reformation in the 1500s. So though it is true, and I do mean it is true, the word of God teaches this. So though it is true that God chooses and elects, and he does, it is also true that God saves whoever calls upon him for salvation. He chooses and elects, yet he saves whoever calls upon him for salvation. And we know God saves everyone who believes in Jesus because Jesus himself, the Son of God, who only spoke what God told him to say, said this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. In his sermon on the uh, day of Pentecost, Peter confirmed that God saves everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And so we read in Acts 2.21, it shall be that everyone, Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul affirms this truth in Romans 10.13 where he says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in pointing this out, I am not intending to diminish or take anything away from God taking the initiative in choosing and electing a people for his own possession. I am pointing this out to remind you, to encourage you, to see that God does both. He takes the initiative in electing and choosing, and he operates in the realm of free will. He allows whoever will call to come. And that's why it is important for us to hold these two truths simultaneously, even though many in the body of Christ 
treat them as contradictory or competitive truths so that they end up picking one over the other. Let us not do that. I've said this before, I'm saying it again. These both come from the word of God. We need to hold them both and hold them together as well as we can. In verse 4, Paul speaks of God's choice of the Macedonian Christians. I'm not offering this as a competitive, uh, a competition against Calvinism or Reformed theology. But, nonetheless, one of the ways to understand Paul's use of this word in relation to the church in Thessalonica is to reference Luke's account of God sending Paul to Macedonia. You see, if we go back to the book of Acts, we have this account that Luke gives us, and it's the account of God sending Paul to Macedonia. So in Acts chapter 16, and we read this early on, I think it was the first Sunday we started this study, in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10, we read that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy passed through the Phrygian and Galatians region. Notice the next words as I read them to you. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of the gospel in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit, did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, where a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And the vision goes like this. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul, having seen the vision, immediately sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called him, called us, Luke was there, called us to preach the gospel to them. We see in this account that God himself forbid Paul to speak the gospel in Asia and Bithynia. He said, no, don't go there. That's off limits. And instead, God sent Paul to Macedonia. And one way to understand this is that God chose the Macedonians over the Asians and Bithynians to receive the gospel first in that area. Why? I don't know. God never tells us. The scriptures don't tell us. But it does tell us this much. That God said no to the Asians, no to the Bithynians, and yes to the Macedonians. And I think from history we realize that this was not an eternal choice of God. God has not prevented the gospel from going to that area of the world that was the Asian area in Paul's day, nor to that area of the world that was the Bithynian area in Paul's day. The gospel has gone into both those areas. So it wasn't an eternal choice. It was apparently God choosing where to send Paul first. I'm offering that as just another way to see how God operates in this realm of choosing and electing. Continuing on, I want to give you a few additional ways 
Again, not competing or contrasting or alternative ways. I'm not diminishing in any way God's choosing and electing, just broadening your perspective of it. So I want to give you a few additional ways uh, that the scripture presents about God choosing us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So notice the timing. It's the same as with Israel. God acts first. So God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Notice the purpose. The purpose of God's choosing. That we would be holy and blameless. Peter says that Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge, which is knowledge before, prior to something happening, or someone appearing, that Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And then look at the purpose, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. 1 Peter 1, 2. And what we see in Ephesians verse 1, chapter 1, verse 4, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, is that God chose us long before we were born. Both those statements provide that picture. And he chose us for his purpose. And the purpose was that we would be holy, we would be blameless, we would be obedient to Jesus, and we would be sprinkled with his blood. Going back to the Old Testament of the sprinkling with the blood, that was the cleansing element, the sanctifying element that made something pleasing and holy unto God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says that Christians are a chosen race, a royal peace priesthood, a holy nation for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what we see in this verse is that God made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, all really marvelous things, unbelievable things in a way, so that we would proclaim the excellencies of God, so that we would proclaim to the world around us the greatness, the goodness the kindness, the perfectness, the beauty of God, the excellencies of God. To me, this is similar to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine in such a way that those who see your good deeds, your good works, the things, the way you live your life, that those who see those things will glorify your Father who is in heaven. All right, let me just kind of wrap this part up. There is no question about God's sovereign choices or election. It is in the word of God. There is no question about God making these choices before the world was created, or at the very least before those chosen are born. There is no question that God's purpose is to have a godly people for his own possession set apart from the rest of humanity and 
living a godly life, blameless, and an obedient life. And there is no question that all of this is done within the realm of free will. Free will is not removed. Sovereignty of God is not removed. All of the sovereign works of God in these ways, God taking the initiative, God acting first is all done within the realm of free will, which means God does receive whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Moving on to verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see that the next thing Paul does is verify God's choice of the Thessalonians, and he verifies this by pointing out three facts. And to me, this is interesting, so stick with me. First, in verse 5, Paul says that his gospel did not come to them in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And that is Paul's first proof that they were chosen, that they were loved and chosen. Second, in verse 6, Paul says that the Thessalonian believers became imitators of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and of the Lord. How did they become imitators of these four? Well, they, by receiving the word in spite of being persecuted while they were receiving it. They suffered for having opened themselves up to the gospel. They paid a price, and yet they did it, in Paul's words, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And the third proof that Paul gives that they were loved and chosen is that the Thessalonian Christians became an example to all the believers. In other words, they ended up living a life that was an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In all these cases, the proof that God chose them was in the effect the gospel had on them. By the way, Calvin would argue the same thing. That's what the P stands for in the word tulip, which he never invented. Somebody came along and took Calvin's teaching and just kind of summarized it in the tulip form. But the P is the perseverance of the saints. If you are elected, if you are chosen, you will live a godly life until death. That's the perseverance of the saints. Well, Paul is saying... In essence, the very same thing. One of the proofs that God chose the Thessalonians was in the effect the gospel had on them. And one of the effects was they lived a godly life in spite of persecution and such a godly life that became an example to the believers in the area. So with this in mind, let's look at these three proofs that these Thessalonican believers were loved and chosen by God. Verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, it wasn't only information. It didn't come as an idea or a theology or a set of facts verifying the existence of God. It didn't come as a well-reasoned presentation. And it's not that any of those things are wrong or bad. But it didn't come as those things alone. So our gospel did not come to you in word only. The word only is important there, Paul writes. 
but also, the word also is important there, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So let's look at just those three parts there. Power, Holy Spirit, and full conviction. The gospel, Paul says, came in power. It is the power of the gospel or the life of the living word. And sometimes the addition of signs and wonders that promotes a faith in God that produces obedience to God. There are those who are involved in evangelism who are committed to only speaking the words of God. There are those who are committed to evangelism who use a variety of other examples and stories. I am not discrediting any of that. God works through a whole variety of means. But I do want to point out that it is the power of the gospel. The gospel is the living word of God. It is not just words on a page. It is the living word of God. It is the power of the gospel. It is the life of the living word that promotes faith in God and produces obedience to God. And sometimes the living word is accompanied by signs and wonders. All right, Romans chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Paul gives some explanation to what I just said. Let me read it to you. For I will not presume, Paul writes, to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, the living word, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In other words, they're not just claiming to be believers, they're living like believers. And, and God accomplished this in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul acknowledges that it was the word, the gospel, the living word itself, but also signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit working together in bringing people to conversion and to Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read this. Paul says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I didn't come with all the best arguments, with all the best logic, with all the best... Uh, proofs from history. wasn't trying to persuade you. My message and my preaching came in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So I have a question. When you are talking to an unbeliever, do you count on God? Or do you ask God to add power to your words when presenting the gospel to that unbeliever? Do you expect that the living word is living and powerful? And do you look to God to add the power of the Holy Spirit or whatever else he wishes to add, signs, wonders, maybe some other thing, circumstances, to the word spoken in order to get the message across to this unbeliever. The second uh, part of verse 5 
is the gospel came in the Holy Spirit, Paul says. And it is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit that produces a proper understanding of the gospel and of the evangelistic message, even if it's not strictly the word of God. It is the Holy Spirit who produces conviction of sin. Jesus tells us that. It is the Holy Spirit who brings about a right view of righteousness. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us understand the word in a practical way so that we can apply the truths of the word in very practical ways to our own life. It is the Holy Spirit that leads us to repentance and produces a changed life. And it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies and guides new believers into all the truth necessary to live a godly life. You see, Paul didn't just go into Thessalonica and preach. He spoke the word, the living word. And it came with power. The Holy Spirit accompanied that living word and had his influence in the lives of those who were hearing And the third thing is the gospel came with full conviction or assurance. Or in other words, the response to the gospel by the Thessalonian believers showed that they were convinced. They had an assurance that what they heard was true. By the way, Luke writes in Acts that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because after listening to what Paul had to say, they went away and searched the Old Testament to see if Paul was telling them the truth. Thessalonians didn't do that, and yet, regardless, the Thessalonians had a conviction, a sense of assurance that what they were hearing was true. They believed it and went on to live it. Paul goes on to proclaim the effect of the the effect the gospel had on these Thessalonians in verses 8 through 10. I won't read that. We'll look at that uh, next week. But I want to conclude with a few questions for us. Have you considered what effect the gospel has had on you? Have you stopped to think about what the gospel or just the living word of God has had on you? Have you ever said thank you to God for the effect of the word of God in your life? This is the word that shows us the path of life. This is the word that shows us what we ought not to be and what we ought to replace what we ought not to be with what we ought to be. This is the word that helps us understand God himself. This is the word that speaks to us when we go astray and calls us back to our senses. Have you considered what effect the gospel has had on you and specifically how it has affected the way you think, what you crave, what your attitudes are, how you speak to others, how you live day by day, who you care for and serve and how others see you, I would encourage you to think about that. And as you see what the word of God has done in your life, 
Make that a reason to give God thanks for the living word. It is alive. It is powerful. It is well. Secondly, when speaking to unbelievers, do you want, do you want God to empower that message that you're speaking? Do you want the Holy Spirit to be active in the situation and in the people you're talking with? Do you expect that? Do you look for that? Do you ask God for that? Do you ask God for wisdom while you're talking? The Thessalonian believers evidenced a clear and obvious change of life because of the living word, because of the Holy Spirit, because someone went to them and spoke to them. Sent by God, they were loved and chosen. May we be able to see ourselves and how we are living as we continue to look at the lives of these believers there in Thessalonica.